what do you know about Medicare? As Australians, we all engage with it and we have some idea what it means. It pays for healthcare. But let's go a little bit deeper because today we're going to level up our knowledge of Australia's universal healthcare insurance scheme. Right now, I'm joined by Dr. Margaret Foe, founder and CEO of Synapse Medical. And in this episode, we'll explore Medicare, the complexity, the mystery, the drama. We'll cover billing, coding, and healthcare financial system education, and much, much more as well. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Margaret Foe. She's a solicitor of the Supreme Court of New South Wales and the High Court of Australia, an academic scholar of Medicare and health insurance law, and even completed a PhD on the topic of Medicare claiming and compliance to put us all to shame. She's a registered nurse and been administering medical billing since Medicare began. She's the founder and CEO of Synapse Medical, which operates one of the largest medical billing services in Australia via an app-based billing system. She's passionate about supporting doctors with their medical compliance obligations and unraveling the mysteries of Medicare and a proud THT member to boot. Hey, Margaret, how are you going? Hey, Pete. I'm really well, thank you. It's great to be here. Good to have you on the show too. Actually, fun fact, uh, I don't know why I throw these random things in. So there was a fancy dress party that I attended and the theme of the party was to dress as something that happened in the year of your birth. And I came to this party dressed as a Medicare card. Oh, 1984. 1984 there you go. Well done. Well done. There you go. I had to, I had to double check, you know, just to see if the story checks out. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's amazing. Look, Margaret, I'm keen. Like, you know, we've chatted a few times, obviously, on various platforms with Talking Health Tech and everything. But for everyone else, tell us a little bit more about you. A little bit about me. I've been working in the health system and health systems around the world for 40 years. That's four zero. <laughs> so um, I'm older than I perhaps sound. Short version of a very long story is that I was a very messy, feral teenager who dropped out of school and I started working as a nurse. So I left school, worked as a nurse assistant in a nursing home in Adelaide, South Australia when I was 16. Then I went and did my registered nurse training at the Repat Hospital in Adelaide, the Door Park Repat, then moved straight to Sydney and worked for 13 years as a registered nurse everywhere. I had the most wonderful nursing career. I worked... I started at the emergency department of St Vincent's Hospital Sydney, so I did a lot of acute nursing, intensive care and operating theatres and all that. But then I did general medicine and the other end of medicine, palliative care nursing. I did home nursing. But I had some really cool jobs as a nurse. Like I was the nurse on a ship for a few cruises and that was actually really cool and we had a ruptured appendix on board the ship so I've got some really great war stories to tell and I was even the nurse at the Sydney Opera House for a while. So I, I had this wonderful career as a nurse but anyway one thing led to another and I found myself studying law so I did a law degree and have been practicing as a lawyer for over 20 years now Um, and I did general litigation and family law and all of that 
spent 10 years in and out of courtrooms. But throughout this entire journey, I was, uh, you know, I met this doctor when I was 20 at St Vincent's Hospital who had no interest or skill in getting paid. And so, of course, I married him. Uh, and <laughs> I'm still married to him almost 40 years later. And that's how it all began because I was the original revenue cycle manager. I was getting him paid through this new system called Medicare. And so I've been part of the entire journey of the transformation from paper-based billing right through to where we are today. And then the entrepreneurial spirit in me rose at some point and I started running a business and then did a PhD as well. So so that's where I am. That's how wow. it all happened. <laughs> that's so cool. I didn't know the, I knew little snippets of it, but it comes together so nicely. And of course it comes down to because your husband was awful at managing money. So that's uh, solving the problem. Love it. Yep. Um, <laughs> so speaking of which, so, you know, the entrepreneurial side, Synapse Medical, tell us a bit more about that, what it is, who it's for, the problem it solves. Right, so Synapse is a med tech company. We started as a service company. So as I said, I was one of the original medical billers, right? So we were shuffling paper around mm. with Medicare item numbers on it and we were manually typing item numbers into very old-fashioned systems and processing Medicare bills. I just couldn't tolerate that. <laughs> I couldn't tolerate it. I thought there has to be a better, more efficient way of doing this. And so we've transitioned completely from being a services company now to being a med tech company. That is what we are. So if anyone comes to us now and says, would you please do my billing by paper and give me paper, we actually turn them away and say, look, unfortunately, no, you'll have to find another provider. You have to do it by the app. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's actually more secure and it's more accurate and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. So we solve manual administration problems using digital means. That's what we do. And where we are extremely skilled is in health financing. So we deal with codes and classifications. That's our world of ICD codes, SNOMED codes, MBS codes, CPT codes, you name it. We work with codes all around the world. And codes generally have some relationship to payment, not always directly, sometimes indirectly, but codes are like the building blocks of every health system, if you like. And so that is um, our two key products are our medical billing and hospital billing product, our clinical coding product, which is a global product, but the two are integrated. That's for Australia. We have medical transcription because we've had that since the beginning and people like it. So we still run a very successful medical transcription service, which is all digital app based. And we have the Education Academy. So we teach people how health systems work. Yeah. We'll get to the education piece soon because I think that's really important. But to go back one, I, I like how you've structured all around the coding. And for those, we, we have more and more people listening to the show who have less and less real world experience in healthcare and keen to get involved. So, you know, in terms of the importance of coding, you touched on it a little bit with often it's linked to finance and the billing side of things. And it's not coding like developer coding and building websites and everything. We're talking about, there's a lot of gray and vague that happens in healthcare to be able to make sure we're still talking about the same thing. This is a code that represents what happens. Is that too crude? 
<laughs> that was spot on, on point. Well done. <laughs> so, so for listeners, this is a really very important discussion for anyone who's interested in getting involved in health systems and health technology because you will need some form of coding system in the back of your technology. It doesn't matter where in the world you do it. So if I can summarise really simply, there are basically four different types of codes that are used in health systems around the world. There's disease codes procedure codes, billing codes, they are not necessarily the same because not everything is a procedure. Repeat script is not a procedure. Diabetes education is not a procedure. So they're not necessarily the same. And the last type of codes is terminology codes. And that's essentially SNOMED, which is the world's language of health. So there's four different types of code sets that are used all around the world and they are used for different things. It's not just for payment. It is also for public health data. It is critically important, public health data collection, because you can't collect words. Doctors say the same thing 20 different ways, and we need to know what they all mean, and that's what codes do. So we use it for public health data collection, epidemiology, so that you can plan your health system and predict what your needs and requirements are so that you have visibility over what is happening in your population. So, so codes serve many, many purposes, one of which is costing and payment and billing, but it's not the only one. Mm, perfect. Thank you. On payment and billing, and we touched on Medicare a little bit at the start there, and you're the only person I know with a doctorate in medical billing. Can I ask why? (laughs) (laughs) That is an excellent... I've asked myself the same question, let me tell you, many, many times going through this journey. Like, I get it's important to know about it, and you can be an expert, but you're... you're, So, yeah, you're the the doctor of it, so, yeah. Look, here's what happened. (laughs) It was February 2012 and the Medical Journal of Australia published an opinion piece written by the former director of the Professional Services Review Agency, which is the Medicare watchdog, called What is Wrong with Medicare? A media frenzy erupted. So for the best part of a week, our televisions and radio stations were running this story about doctors rorting. So basically what the author alleged was that doctors were rorting Medicare to the tune of 2 to $3 billion per annum, and it was rife. It was everywhere. The day that article was published, that was the day I picked up the phone. I remember it. I called my alma mater, UTS, where I did my law degree, and I said, I've got an idea for a research project. Wow. Because what happened was I thought... By 2012, I had had one too many conversations seeking clarity on some really important aspect of Medicare billing. This is public money. This is taxpayers' money. And no one could give me a straight answer, including Medicare. And I thought, look, my experience was the antithesis of the author of that article. My experience, and by then it was like 10 years of experience in billing, more, my experience was that doctors actually wanted to do the right thing. That was my experience. But they were struggling to know what the right thing was because the rules were getting so convoluted 
and complex and sometimes you couldn't even find a rule that applied to you that it was very difficult to know what was right or wrong. And then I was a lawyer, remember, by then because and I remember thinking this is a legal system. Like Mm. I'm a lawyer and I can't, I'm having trouble understanding this law, so how on earth are doctors supposed to manage, you know? So I made that, it started as a master's and I think my supervisors had an evil and cunning plan that they always thought, oh, we're going to turn this into a PhD. So they did and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger because what I wanted to do, I thought, look, the only way we're really going to be able to have the conversation that this nation needs to have about this topic is to get away from opinions and wrap evidence around the topic and I thought look you can only do that within the research environment because it has to be wrapped in academic rigor really I thought you know I'm passionate about this I feel like the Australian population including the media doesn't understand this problem and I felt I wanted to help us all see what we've got with clear eyes and get away from entrenched unconscious biases such as all doctors are rotting, all doctors are greedy. That's what we have to fix to fix the health system. And my research has unequivocally proven that is incorrect. Yeah. Let's get to that. Let's go into that in more detail because, you know, I've got my copy of the PhD and I'm powering my way through it. Oh, you haven't finished uh, it, Pete. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> I'm just going back on a few bits. Seventy pages. <laughs> <laughs> but look, to help, you know, give it, in, like you touched on a little bit of it then, but what is a, a PhD about? medical billing or Medicare actually involve, like it's not a reinterpretation of Medicare, like what's involved in that whole? Good question. And this is one of the reasons why it was very important for me to do this in an academic setting, because what you get in an academic setting is you get supervisors and your supervisors really work you hard in terms of being very clear about what are the research questions. What is it you are trying to prove or examine? So you can't just say, look, oh, Medicare's a mess and I'm going to write a big book about Medicare. So that is not what happened. So my supervisors, I was very lucky. I have two of the best supervisors, Professors John Wardle and John Adams, both public health experts, and they helped me refine the research aims and the research questions. So the aims of my study were fourfold. The first was to provide the first critical examination of the experiences and perceptions of medical practitioners as they interact with Medicare and claim MBS reimbursements, identify perceived barriers to compliance, explore possible solutions to problems and deficiencies identified by the participants, and to make recommendations for reform using a roadmap based on the doctrinal analysis and the outcomes of the study. And then the next stage is, so what are the questions you're going to ask to achieve those aims? Mm. So the research questions, there are four. The first one is, what are the experiences, perceptions, attitudes and knowledge of medical practitioners in relation to their claiming and compliance obligations under the MBS? The second one is, How do they manage, research and investigate their MBS claiming and compliance obligations? The third is where do they access support and advice in relation to their Medicare claiming and compliance obligations? Who provides this support and advice and how do they rate the quality of that support and advice? 
And the last one is what are the complexities in the Australian medical billing ecosystem that may impact doctors' compliance with medical billing? In a nutshell, that mm. is what this thesis was and that's why it was not a master's and because <laughs> <laughs> and it was a PhD. Nice. No, look, that's so helpful in giving that context. And, you know, just thinking then, putting it all together, going through the research and doing it, not to give any spoiler alerts for those that want to kind of be left on their the edge of their seat. But when it comes to some of those recommendations or your findings, is it that, look, there's little bits around the edges that need to be improved or do we need to chuck the whole thing in the bin? Where's the whole on the spectrum of things with Medicare after everything you've gone through, your view on that? Okay. Without spoiling it for those who want to make it all the way to the end of page 474, Medicare's in very poor shape, I'm sorry to say. We definitely should not throw the whole thing out. And the reason reason I say that is because every country, including Australia, has committed to sustainable development goals, or one of which is that the whole world will have universal health coverage by 2030. So every country has to have a universal health coverage system and has committed to having that. And we've already got one that actually has very strong constitutional foundations, like the pillars, if you like, the concrete slab of Medicare is got some cracks in it, but it's okay. It's holding the house up, right, still. So my recommendation would definitely not be to throw it out because, you know, what are you going to replace it with anyway? We've already got like a not bad system. But we do need to do major reform, Pete. This is not little. And, in fact, the reason we're in such a mess is because we have been doing little things, tinkering for about the last 20 years in particular, and we need to stop doing that. What I've said is there's three areas that need reform. The first is legislation or regulation, like we've got to rewrite the law, fix it up, get rid of it, like stop messing it up. The second is educational reform and the third is digital. I didn't expect, if you'd said to me eight years ago or nine years ago when I started, whatever it was, you'll be um, writing about the rule of law, <laughs> natural justice, and digital health systems, I would have said, mm. are you mad? Like, you know, no. I just assumed education was the problem and I was wrong. It's not. In fact, you can't educate anyone at the moment because it's so broken. You have to write the rule book before you can write a curriculum on the rule book. So, you know, in the rule of law, where there's no natural justice in the professional services review, we've got some major, major, major things need to be fixed. And then digital reform was really, really important. I'll just say one thing that some of your listeners may or may not have tuned in to Cosmetic Cowboys. So it was a Four Corners episode late last year, late in 2021, by Adele Ferguson with the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the ABC. And it exposed some very shocking practices in the area of cosmetic surgery in Australia. And I was involved in that program and those who saw it would have seen me, my mug on there, here and there, said a couple of things. But the reason the investigators came to me was because of the underlying problems in the health system, right? So really, we probably don't have time to go into it in great detail today, but some of the things you saw there, quite apart from being unethical and dangerous and patient safety and all those terrible things, there's actually structural problems deep inside the legislation that runs the health system that allows those things to occur. 
that is where the problems are. They are deeply structural and that's where the focus needs to be. But we also must digitise. We have to engage in serious digital transformation of the health system as well. Oh, I hear you. Definitely on the digitisation front, I think many are on that bandwagon, still a lot of work to do. We'll come to the education in a second, but just lastly on this topic before we move on, the when it comes to rewriting the rules or some of the big reform that needs to happen, I'm going to assume you're not just, now that you've finished this PhD, it's not just going on the shelf. Like, what's the plan from here with that? You know, at my age and stage, um, Pete, I'm not going to just, having done, you know, spent a decade doing this, I'm not going to be quiet. Now I'm going to get out there and hustle and really try and engage positively in this debate wherever I can and wherever it's appropriate. One of the things that I'm looking at, so for example, one of the findings in my PhD is that a person who wants to study health insurance or health financing law and practice is currently unable to do that anywhere in the world. It doesn't exist. So while the discipline of health economics deals with the architecture of health financing arrangements, right? So it deals with things like where's the money going to come from? Is it going to be from taxes? Is it going to be a public system? Is it going to be from levies like the Medicare levy? Is it going to be a private system? So where's the money going to come from? And the economists are also very good at things like incentives. How do we align incentives? And then payment structures. Is it going to be fee-for-service, capitation, performance-based models or salaries or a mix? So that's where health economists work in that space. But they don't build the house. It's in the same way I've explained to a few people. I've said, listen, when you get your tax return done every year, you don't go to a macroeconomist. Like a macroeconomist has, you know, advised the government about the tax system but you don't go to a macroeconomist to get your tax return done. Go to a tax accountant. And if you have a legal problem with your tax, you go to a tax lawyer. Whereas in Australia, if you have a legal problem with Medicare, you go to a doctor. So we are missing. We've got economists and doctors and the people in the middle are completely missing. So we're actually missing a whole profession which is health system lawyers and we need digital health experts in there as well. You know, we need a lot of people, a lot of skills at the health reform table now. And, in fact, the World Health Organisation is recognising this more and more and more. So, um, and, in fact, one of our colleagues across the pond in New Zealand, um, David uh, Carter, I think his name, he's a health system lawyer and he's heading up the health system law at WHO in Geneva at the moment because they are recognising now that they need health system lawyers to actually construct the health system. It's like you're the construction company, right? You've had the architects, that's the health economists, they've designed the house. You've got the codes you're going to use, that's your trip to Bunnings. You've got all the materials there, that's your classifications and codes and various other things that you're going to use to build the house. But you need the construction company to build the house and make it work, and that's the lawyers. And they know how the health system works. Living in the house, it's a shared house, and it's being lived in by doctors and patients. But what you can see is that if doctors, you know, take out a supporting beam, the whole house falls down because they didn't know how it was built. 
So we're missing this profession, basically. And I'm surprised you, Pete, because you would have read page 383. I'm sure it's your favourite page. 383, did you say? Yeah. That's your favourite page, right? Yeah, yeah. It's on my wall. Yeah, yeah, it's on your wall, right? So it's, you, you put that in a frame. So that's the education framework that I've put in the thesis that's come from the evidence. And the sorts of things these people need to learn and understand, firstly, they need to understand all the law, and that's the Health Insurance Act and regulations, the Private Health Insurance Act and regulations, the National Health Reform Agreement, APRA, the Professional Services Review, uh, State Workers, State Health Acts, State Insurance Acts, rights of private practice agreements, contracts, they need a bit of basic law. So there's a fair amount of basic law that people need to wrap their heads around, but then they need to learn a little bit about health economics, not a lot, they're not becoming health economists, but they need to understand a bit about health economics, as I did going through my thesis. They need an introduction to global clinical code and classification systems. They need to have comparative health system knowledge. They need to know about medical billing ethics and how we pay for health around the world. They need to know about things like informed financial consent and they definitely need an introduction to health informatics and digital health. So you can see that is a university degree. That's a big course. Mm. That's a master's level course. I'm very keen to implement that and I've got a um, an adjunct position at Southern Cross University and perhaps that might be a place where I might be able to start putting some of this into action. Yeah. Who knows? As you went through that list of items on that curriculum, they're all different aspects that I think cover different areas that you'd learn little bits about in different areas or, you know, that you would specialise. But I, I would imagine there are many If they're involved in healthcare or interested in getting amongst it, particularly on the payment side, they're everything that seems pretty mission critical. Until that that is a qualification we can all undertake, what are some things in a practical sense? Because there's still healthcare to be delivered on a day-to-day today and, you know, we're still operating on rules that many don't have a great understanding of. For anyone that wants to... I guess, learn more about Medicare or the the practical sense or like, where do you start with this type of thing? Do you just open up Medicare and have a read? Where do you start? It's a really good question. And in fact, uh, there's a paper being published in a couple of days where I interviewed all the doctors and a lot of doctors said to me, and I think I've put it in that, in the article, a lot of them said to me, you know, the word Medicare was not mentioned once throughout my entire journey of medical school, becoming a specialist, my postgraduate training. Literally, they said that to me. The word Medicare was not once mentioned. So this is the sort of that void and all the doctors described it as a massive, big black hole. One of them said to me, he said, you finish, right, you finish medical school, you go through years and years and years of additional training and you get to the end and you're a registrar and you think, right, There's this thing called Medicare. Okay, what do I know about Medicare? Nothing. So that's basically where it is. So the evidence makes very clear we need a national curriculum. It should be government controlled and so on and so forth. But I'm um, obviously not going to wait and just throw our doctors and health professionals to the wolves unprepared. So our Education Academy, AMAC, 
the Australian Institute of Medical Administration and Compliance, is there for that purpose. So I am committed to building knowledge, helping people learn how to bill correctly, building people who can call themselves experts. One of the findings from my PhD is that there are no medical billing experts in this country. That category of person does not exist and the evidence is clear on that. So what you have is people with varying levels of self-taught knowledge. Some Mm. of them might know a lot about a little bit. Whatever they need to know to do their job at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so there are people that I go to. I've got my go-to people because I know there's people that have really deep knowledge of a little bit and I can go to, but there is no one that has deep knowledge of the whole thing. So we've got all these courses online and we've got subscriptions and they start with the basics, you know, what's Medicare, how does it work, you know, how does bulk billing work. Like most Australians, including most doctors, do not understand bulk billing and that's Medicare 101, you know, how to bulk bill correctly. So we've got all these online courses. There's short, there's little 30-minute ones, one-hour ones, longer ones. There's packages. We've got little how-to-build videos that are four to five minutes long. I'm doing more and more of them. We're running webinars that are one hour long that people are welcome to participate in. And what I want to say about AMAC is probably I would recommend the go-to place to get legally accurate education on how to bill correctly to Medicare and the private health insurers in this country. We're doing much more than that. We want to teach people how health systems work. So all those things I just talked about. So it's not just me writing courses. We've got international pharmacists writing pharmacy courses for us. I didn't write the pharmacy courses. That's not my area of expertise. I had a cyber, health cyber person, Rob Camus, who's wrote the cyber course. Uh, We've got people participating from the Middle East, in Dubai, in the UK, in India. So we've got people participating all around the world so that we want people to be able to have a go-to place where they can learn how our health system works but also get a real feel for digital health structure, health data structure. There's a lot about that on there, clinical coding, health informatics, comparative health systems all of that. So it's a sort of go-to place on health systems. I've looked through and gone through some of the courses in there too, because some of the content is available to our own THD Plus members as well. So it's a really useful resource. We'll make sure that the links for that are in the notes of this episode and on our website for people to check out. But on that point too, that you raised around doctors, clinicians, GPs, not having a lot of confidence in Medicare, I can, you know, attest firsthand in managing GPs in their practice. GPs just don't want to get, like you say, Medicare, and they're scared that the Medicare is going to walk through the door and audit them. And everything they do is, I don't want to get a Medicare audit. Correct. And so it's out of, like anything, if you're not fully confident or educated in a particular area, you're going to default to, particularly for a relatively risk-averse kind of population of being, you know, in healthcare, I'm going to err on the side of... I'm not going to do something just in case Medicare audits me, which is good in that sense in the, you know, we don't have cowboys that are doing things that are going to be wrong. But at the same time, if you don't know the landscape that you're operating, you don't know what you can and can't do. So that can be really hard and distracting when that's not their job in the end. It's to provide, you know, good quality healthcare. So it's such an important thing, having that education. Look, it's really important. This is a very important point that you raised, Pete, because, and and I've talked about it extensively in my thesis, 
What's happened is our method of auditing health payments is expensive, old-fashioned and punitive, Mm. completely out of whack with what the direction the rest of the world is heading in, where you use digital means to get better visibility over payments before those payments are made rather than doing pay and chase post-payment policing, right? So what's happened for doctors is that they've become so afraid that a lot of things are happening as a result of that. So one is they underbill. And this will shock the media. It's the opposite of the rorting example, right? It's the opposite. All of them reported underbilling. They said they're too scared and they just won't bill it. Or they'll do things like this. They will spend 45 minutes or an hour with a patient, a really, really complex patient, because they are good doctors and they are doing what is right for that patient, right? But they will not bill item number 44, which is the long consultation, because the terror, right, they know that if they become a statistical outlier, it's not that they might get audited, they will be audited, right? So they will instead bill, for example, an item 23, which is the short consultation, right? So a few things are happening there. Firstly, public health data is being compromised. That's the first thing, right? Nobody thinks about that because we just think about money. But that actually impacts the quality and the accuracy of our public health data. Because if you're running really good public health data system, you want to know accurately. You want to know that these people are spending an hour or 45 minutes with a patient. That's important for us to know. These patients must be complex, right? So instead, we believe that this doctor spent, you know, six minutes with the patient. So that's the first problem there. But the second problem there is the patient, depending on the practice, will pay a much bigger out-of-pocket cost. So this is pushing out-of-pocket costs up, right? So if you spend an hour with a patient, let's say you charge $150. If you submitted a claim for the correct item number, item 44, that patient's going to get a rebate of, I can't remember what it is now, but it's like $80 or whatever, right? So they'll be out-of-pocket 70. But because you're scared, you're going to instead put on that claim, item 23, which pays at $38. So you've increased the patient's out-of-pocket cost by $40, $50 in one hit. And because this is subtle and nuanced and it's happening beneath the surface and nobody really understands how Medicare works, what's happening is patients get this sense that out-of-pocket costs are going up and up and up and up and up, but they don't really understand it. And the truth is out-of-pocket costs are going up and will continue to while the policing system is so punitive and aggressive. Mm. We've got it wrong. We really have, are not doing this in a way that is best for doctors or their patients. Yeah. Now, there's so much there and so many flashbacks from my own experience in working with so many good GPs and doing things for what they feel is the right reasons and only with good intentions, but the system's not supporting them to do that. So a lot to be done. So I'm sure there's multiple episodes we can do following this to kind of unpack some of it more and people could. We will never run out of things, never run out of things to say. Whatever you said earlier, earlier in your introduction, you said in the drama of Medicare. And as soon as you said that, I thought, you know, I really think we should get together and write Medicare the musical. It lends itself. (laughs) 
it lends itself to a musical, really. Amazing. Yeah. No, that we, we we should totally get to work on that now that you've got all this free time yeah, after right. finishing the PhD. <laughs> but speaking of all the free time you have, obviously you're going to be still very busy, particularly with Synapse. Tell us a little bit more about what you're working on at Synapse. What can we expect to see from the business in 2022 and beyond? Oh, okay. We're doing some really exciting things both in Australia and internationally. Let me start with the international stuff. So um, our air coder product, which is automated clinical coding, has no competitor anywhere in the world. There is nothing, nothing like it in the world. So what you see is other products that still require human coders to code or uh, natural language processing products. And we use some of the concepts of natural language processing in air coder, but it is much, much, much more sophisticated than that because NLP on its own can't automate coding. For example, let me give you an example. NLP will do something like if it sees DD in a medical record or an asterisk or something, it will just ignore it because it's not a word, it's not language. Mm. Whereas DD could mean diverticular disease, developmental delay, you know, it can mean a whole lot of things. Mm. So we've had the, the brains of the brilliant Heather Grain, internationally probably one of the best health informaticians, clinical coders, health information managers, you know, sits on international SNOME committees, the ISO Health Informatics Committee. She's got, you know, 40 years of experience like me. So it's her brains and her son, Andrew Grain, who's also their HL7 experts as well. So they've been working for over a decade on this. It's almost been 15 years now. And it's such a sophisticated product. It's not a code map. That's the other thing. A lot of the other products are just code maps. The problem with a code map is when codes change, you have to change your map. And this is not a code map. So code maps don't always give you what you want. So Air Coder is so clever that it does a minimum of 12 tasks with every entry, minimum. Sometimes it can do more than 12. It might have to go back and look at context and check things again and then delivers the codes for you. We've got a big pilot uh, that's about to launch in the Middle East coming up shortly, and we're very excited about that. But the other thing we're doing, again, it's another pilot in the Middle East, a different one, is syndromic surveillance. It's, two, it's the most exciting thing I've ever done. We've partnered with our organisation called Alliance Care Technologies, and they've built algorithms that can predict syndromes. So for like for the next mm. pandemic, I know we can't bear the thought of that because we're still in the current one. I'm still in this one. <laughs> I know, I know. But um, to predict syndromes, they've built algorithms based on SNOMED codes. This group of SNOMED codes suggests you might have an Ebola outbreak over here, or this group of SNOMED codes might be SARS-CoV-2, or this group might be a gastro outbreak, right? Mm. But the problem was getting the codes because words come in from electronic medical records, human coders code them, it's too slow. You can't have human coders coding and have your coding done once a week or once a month, or even once a day, we see how quick COVID spreads. It spreads in an instant, so it has to be live. So we were the missing link for them. And um, we've integrated and partnered, and together we have this syndromic surveillance. They lead that project, so it's their product, and we're really just plugged into the back. So they collect words from all the electronic medical records. They deliver the words to us. We code them to SNOMED. We're actually coding to SNOMED and ICD-10-CM for them at the moment because they wanted both and we can do both. We can do all code sets at the same time. It's fine. 
and we deliver the codes back to them in an instant. So it happens in real time in a nanosecond. And then they give alerts to say, you know, this is happening here, this is happening over here. And then you can ring fence outbreaks and have like a, a synoptic chart, you know, like the weather maps. Yeah. You can have like a synoptic chart to say, oh, look over here, there's a storm warning. But it's actually, you know, it's a cluster of this group of snowmed coats. So we're doing that and we're working in other countries in Africa and doing a lot of work in the Middle East, all with automated clinical coding, which is really exciting. And in Australia, we have AirCoder integrated with our billing system. And I think what a lot of people don't know is that we don't just have medical billing. So obviously, we've got the only rules engine in Australia. And I just want to say that because a few people have questioned me on that. There's a difference between having a rules engine and having a rules platform that people could put rules into if they knew what the rules were, which I think some other vendors have. That is not what we are. We are doing the Medicare rules. And in my thesis, I estimated based on a mathematical exercise that there would be 2 million rules minimum for the Medicare billing system based on the number of item numbers. And we're at 63,000. So we've got a long way to go, but we've got 63,000 more than anybody else. Um, <laughs> and um, so we've actually got the rules that actually stop incorrect claims at the start and the doctors love it because it just mm. helps them you don't have to remember things the app says no you can't do that can't do that and so on and so forth so we've got that and the medical billing system that's very sophisticated and is already in a lot of hospitals but we have hospital billing too now so we're integrated with medicare for ihc in hospital claims so that's all the accommodation and bed billing what that means is we've got a complete revenue cycle system for Australia that doesn't need humans. It's so cool. We've got to the point where you can now discharge a patient with one click and the entire episode is coded, billed, sent to the payer in an instant with no human touch and everything is paid, reconciled with no humans involved. So we're really excited and we've got quite a lot of pilot projects going on in various mostly small facilities, which is a good place to run proof of concepts and pilots and things, and it's going really, really well. And the other thing is I got contacted the other day by, I'm not going to tell you where, but someone in another country who said, we've adopted Australia's ICD-10 AM and ACHI and nobody knows how to use it. And I went, yeah, I know that's quite common, yeah. And then they said to me, how do you use ACHIs for outpatients? And I said, we don't. And they said, oh, everyone thinks you do. What do you use for outpatients in Australia? And I said, we use the MBS. And they said, what's that? And so, and then they said to me, can we have that? And I said, well, yeah, I'm just not sure that you want it. We probably should have another conversation about your health system before we go too far. <laughs> but probably what we're now having these weekly meetings about is they're saying, could we not just have your whole system? They just give us all the technology because you've got medical billing, hospital billing and the coding. It's the whole Australian system and we seem to be missing bits of it. Can't we have the whole thing? So it's very interesting as these countries are building these nascent health systems, you want to do this in a mature health system, but it's all the ones that are getting ready for universal health coverage 2030, right? You've yeah. you got to get there and it's a big job. So we're very excited about the potential to roll out our not just air coder but our billing platform to other countries as well. And you can plug it into anything. You can plug it wow. into, you know. 
And it's got SNOMED enabled too. So you can put SNOMED codes in there too and that's very valuable. That sounds really cool. I, I would love to dig into it even more and that sounds remarkably fascinating for those developing countries that have the potential to... We talk about this a lot too, where rather than being 20 years behind, needing to go through 20 years, they've got this opportunity to leapfrog other countries to be able to have a better healthcare system. So such a cool thing to be part of that. And I've learned so much about the space that you guys are operating in. I can't wait to chat again on the show. We'll put some details about Synapse and about AMAC and about everything else that you do so people can get in touch if they want to. You can get that on the Talking Health Tech website in the show notes of this episode. But for now, Margaret, we'll have to leave it there thank you so much and i look forward to seeing you at the screening of medicare the musical at some time soon yeah we'll, we'll be in the front row together it'll be great <laughs> thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure thanks for listening to the show check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the australian health tech industry Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.